Welcome to episode 384 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a wonderful conversation with the intellectual affairs columnist for Inside Higher Education, Scott McLemy. We discuss how he got to do what he does indeed do and how using your own perspective is a good technique. We discuss Shakespeare and Trump and Steve Bannon as well as Lenin and Trotsky and Stalin. Being a perpetual student and reflect a bit on the pandemic and remote education. A really great conversation with Scott McLemy. We also feature an EWSA titled Charlie and episode three of a radio play written by our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavise, titled The Lonesome Cowboy, as performed by Dominic Azzarelli. And we have a poem called Trusty Couch. And of course, all of this will be imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 384 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. in the living room Your pipe and slippers set out for you I know you think that it ain't too far But I I hear a call of a lifetime ring Felt the need to get up for it Oh, you cut out the middle man Get free from the middle man You got no time for the messenger Got no regard for the thing that you don't understand You got no fear of the underdog That's why you will not survive I wanna forget how convention fits can I get out from under it? Can I cut it out of me? Oh, it can't all be wet and cake It can't all be boiled away I try but I can't let go of it Can't let go of it uh-huh. Cause you don't talk to the water boy And there's so much you could learn But you don't wanna know You will not back up an inch of it that's why you will not survive. 
everything that I tell you now It may not go over well Oh, and it may not be thought of why No way that I spell it out But you won't hear from the messenger Though I don't know about something that you don't understand You got no fear of the underdog That's why you will not survive What is the point of all this? I asked the woman who married me, despite warnings from some of my dearest friends and her mother. We were walking together up a paved hillside street in the breeze off the trees of the West Mountain Range. A little girl, I would estimate at four years of age, was standing with her wind-blown, knotted long, light brown hair partially covering her face. She held her small hands together with fingers partially interlocked. A pair of summer flip-flops on her feet as the cuffs of long, baggy faded blue jeans set atop of little toes. Her left foot just touching the granite, shale, gray, shaggy fur of a handsome, square-faced mutt. Sitting with all four legs and belly on the grass of a side yard that abuts the street we walked. Looking happy, poised, earnest, and proud, the young one waved and said hello. The dog let out a small bark. As we walked, I asked if it is a boy or a girl. She said, it's a boy. What's his name? Charlie. My wife and I waved and said, see you later. The little girl waved too, smiling and happy, standing there. Her mom, watching from the backyard as she rearranged some lawn chairs. My wife said as we walked up the hill, that's the point of all this. In this time that I've been given Fill my life with living I hope I've done The best that I can do Yes, regrets I've got a few But honey, none of them is you And I need you 
Like a singer needs a song I don't know if heaven's real But that's how you make me feel You make it all right Whatever thing's wrong And this is our song Scott McLemy, is that you? Is this Dr. Uh, Demure? Do you go by that, or is it Conundrum Demure? Or? You could call me uh, whatever you like, you know, okay. E-W. Uh, yeah, whatever works for you. It works for me. I'm, I'm, I'm you, uh, we're having some repairs done today, and so I have cats in my office. Uh, so if there's any crashing or noises like that, that's what that is. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Scott McLemy is the intellectual affairs columnist for Inside Higher Ed. As such, he writes a weekly column. His essays, reviews, and interviews have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, The Nation, Newsday, Book Forum, International Socialist Review, and numerous other publications. 
He was a contributing editor for Lingua Franca magazine from 1995 until 2001 and covered scholarship in the humanities as senior writer at the Chronicle of Higher Education between 2001 and 2005. He has served on the board of directors of the National Book Critics Circle and in 2004 received the NBCC's Award for Excellence in Reviewing. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is happy to have on the program Scott McLemy. Thank you, sir, again for being on the program and uh, just want to jump right in. Give the folks, if you would, listening, a little sort of background on, on exactly what you do as the intellectual affairs columnist. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, just for, for background, I'm, I'm uh, from uh, tech, my, my family background is from Texas, um, and I think in a way once you're from Texas, you're sort of always from Texas. Um, but I live in uh, Washington, D.C. now, and um, I used to work at the Library of Congress in the Manuscript Division there before, while I was sort of getting started uh, publishing. Um, so uh, that's, that's, uh, that, that, that is, that goes to the, to the degree of, you know, of interest in, like, history and um, um, just uh, having access to a library. Unfortunately, I, I, I met and married a reference librarian while I was there, which, if, you know, if you're a writer, that's just absolutely the smartest thing you could ever do. <laughs> um, so, uh, and, and I, my, my interests in my background are, are in uh, uh, various figures, including uh, Kenneth Burke, who's a great uh, literary theorist and uh, commentator, and C.L.R. James, who, was a, who wrote the uh, history of um, the Haitian slave revolution called the Black Jacobins. Um, and so all of these are, are things that I've, you know, I've come back to um, in, in my own work. Um, but in, in doing the column, it's a matter of always trying to sort of keep my, my attention open to both what's happening in the news now and what is coming from the, the publishers that looks like it might be, that look, you know, might be, of general interest or might be at least sort of worth po- poking around with and seeing if there's any connection with things that, that are of general concern. Um, so I write this column. Uh, it used to be uh, weekly, and uh, since earlier this year, it's, it's uh, twice a month, um, in which I go through usually a new uh, university press or scholarly books and write about them with a degree of a personal voice, I guess. Um, I, I don't want the column to be about me, but I'm also completely willing and, and able to use my own perspective um, in, in approaching books. So I, I don't know if that's enough of a, enough of a framing of what, uh, what I do, but that's, that's what I aspire to anyway. Well, yeah, it's great. And I, I'm just wondering, you know, the audience, is it a, a specialized audience, would you say, that would read your work? And, you know, is it, uh, what's the intent? Is it to get a, a better handle on, on what exactly? Well, the, the audience of the, for Inside Higher Ed and you know, the audience for a number of the places that I've written for, the Lingua Franca and the Chronicle of Higher Education and so on, is um, includes... You know, people who are definitely are specialists in the subjects that I'm writing about, which certainly is a, a terror sometimes. Um, but I, I must generally do things right because I don't get called out all that much. Um, but but Inside Higher Ed has an audience of, I don't know, like a couple million people in all different levels of higher education. 
uh, from you know graduate students to administrators to professors to everybody, human resource people, and so forth. So I'm always I've always got the the possibility of somebody who both knows absolutely nothing about what I'm writing about reading it, and somebody who knows far more than I or even maybe the author of the book I'm writing about now. So that's that's a little bit you know that's like juggling chainsaws or something, but um, <laughs> but uh, that's that's the that's the audience I'm going for the, uh, the 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 famed common reader or a general educated public, which is a a somewhat mythological notion at this point in history, but <laughs> but it is what I try to write for. Yeah, yeah, and and um, I, you know as you said, it must be somewhat. Uh, uh, of a terror, given you you have all of these really bright uh, people who probably uh, have some egos going along with that intelligence that, uh, you know, you have to wonder if they're going to pounce, say, oh, oh yeah. yeah. But it doesn't happen often, it seems. that You're highly yeah, not, re- regarded. Not really, not really. I mean, occasionally, you know, you have to cut corners sometimes and you don't, like, give all of the background on a given subject. And somebody will say, aha, well, you didn't know this. I was like, yes, I did know it, but I don't have, you know, uh, a book. I'm not writing a book here. I'm writing a, a, thousand, a thousand to 1,500 word column most of the time. Um, yeah, so it's limited. It's a skill set. It, it's absolutely a skill set, and, it's, and it, it is frankly one that academics are not generally encouraged to cultivate. I mean, you get, you get sort of, you know, paid by the pound with academic pros. Um, and and if you're writing for the kinds of newspapers and magazines I I started out in, you know the ability to say something in 500 words or a thousand words is is a skill that's cultivated. And, and I, on a publication that I, I uh, do some editorial work for, somebody said, "Well, I can't write about a subject in under 10,000 words." Huh. And I thought I didn't say, but I thought if you can't say something in under 10,000 words, then you don't have anything to say. Yeah. Oh yeah, I I think I think this is Einstein, and I'm paraphrasing, but basically at one point he shared the notion that someone who really knows something doesn't need a lot of words and can and can uh, clearly explain what they know uh, w- with a limited amount of words and put it in a in a way that is very uh, accessible. Well, and and in that regard, I'll say that one of my models. Um Maybe my, my, my greatest of household gods is the, um, the English essayist William Hazlitt um, from the early 19th century, who has an essay uh, called uh, On Familiar Style. And he says, uh, to write a genuine, familiar, or truly English style is to write as anyone would speak in common conversation who had a thorough command and choice of words or who could discourse with force, ease, and perspicuity, setting aside all pedantic and oratorical flourishes. It is easy to affect a pompous style to use a word twice as big as the thing you want to express. It is not so easy to pitch upon the very word that exactly fits it. So that, you know, that's something to, to measure your, your effort by, and that, uh, he, he pretty much hit the, hit the target on that. Oh, yeah, that makes total sense. Um, and, you know, some of the areas that you do uh, delve into uh, via your column. Uh, what what would be some give give us some examples of some of the the foc- the focus that uh, you, you've you've had. Sure. Well, just I mean, g- going back to just through the summer, and you know, given the world circumstances, it's really hard to to folk to find things that are not overwhelmingly connected with the news, um, or at the same time, not going to be of any interest to anybody because the news is so pressing. Um, 
but uh, but I, for example, the column that I have today is a uh, is on um, a little book by Bernard Henri Lévy, the uh, French um, uh, self-described philosopher. Um, I'm a little dubious about that, but uh, he has a little book about uh, the uh, coronavirus, which he wrote and finished in June and was published by uh, Yale University Press last month, and uh, and I'm uh, you know reviewing it now, and. Uh, and it's it's really really not very good, but it, but it is interesting, and it's badness. Um, <laughs> so you know that's 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 kind of nice when that happens. Um, but but earlier in the summer, I think back in May, I did a review of a book by uh, Jeffrey R. Wilson um, called uh, Shakespeare and Trump. Um, more recently, I did one on uh, how uh, by a couple of French authors. Um, Called uh, how everything can collapse. Um, so these, I mean, this, that gives you some sense of how I'm trying to, you know, both address what's in the news and and uh, get books that aren't do do things that aren't just about the days, you know, the, the days breaking events. Um, when you mentioned the one, if I read a little bit of, of, of what I uh, I wrote in uh, uh, in uh, approaching the, the Shakespeare and Trump book because I have to admit I was totally dubious about this book. Yeah, I actually, that's exactly what I was going to ask you. You're reading my mind. Well, I thought it was a preposterous idea. I, I hate to admit, I mean, you know, you, you have to, one, one thing I do is I work with my prejudices or my assumptions. I, I'm willing to confront them, you know, and use that as material, even, and framing what i got to say about a book. And so I said, uh, uh, in the opening to the piece, I said, I wrote, uh, the prospect of reading a book about Donald Trump and William Shakespeare initially struck me as dubious on what seemed like obvious grounds. Trump is manifestly un-Shakespearean. He is fond of monologues, to be sure, but they reveal nothing. His character is too thin, his motives too blatant. Trump's lies are uninspired and self-defeating, not through adverse consequences, but simply from the sheer volume and transparency of them. His failures do not elicit pathos, resolving themselves time and again into bankruptcy of the most literal sort with no lasting consequences, at least for him. He is often incoherent, but never enigmatic. Nothing could make Trump a tragic figure, and Shakespeare has clowns of greater moral complexity. So that's that was my initial, you know, that, that, that was my, my feeling going in to, to reading the book. And I read the book, and I was, I was, I, I won't say that I was wrong about Trump, but I was wrong about the book, um, because this author Jeffrey R. Wilson has went through and showed, for example, in 2016. Half the pundits and half the journalists who wrote anything about Shakespeare, it seems like you referred to Shakespeare at some point along the way. Um, uh, Steve Bannon, uh, currently, you know, incarcerated, I guess. Right, right. Steve Bannon, in the 1990s, worked on, uh, you know, he was, he, he, he was a, a movie producer, and he had in production two movies based on adaptations of Shakespeare's plays uh, Titus Andronicus, which is a crazy, weird play, and Coriolanus, um, reimagined respectively as a science fiction adventure in outer space and a hip-hop musical set in south-central Los Angeles. Now, that's both a sort of an interesting tidbit, but when you get in and you actually look at, the, the, at this other did, he went and he got a hold of copies of the scripts and he analyzed them and found that you could find an awful lot of Steve Bannon's politics um, and consequently, of course, Trump's politics in these plays, these screenplays, which sound absolutely terrible. Um, 
the one of the one of the lines from one of the films says uh, he climbs onto her and their forms dissolve, blend and blur in an erotic scene of ectoplasmic sex. <laughs> That's um, lame. So it's probably probably best that that movie was not made, but but you know. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. That's just hilariously bad. <laughs> so you know, or maybe it will be now. Who knows? It, it, it might it might find an audience now. But um, but but also you know back uh, in 2017, and this is this shows you how uh, how much you forget these things. So this was big news at the time, and I forgot about it entirely. Uh, there was a production of Julius Caesar in, in Central Park. Uh, in which the Julius Caesar character was blatantly modeled on Donald Trump. He had the hair, he had the red tie, the whole bit. I remember. So I remember that. That this was that the assassination scene naturally drove some people into an absolute frenzy, right? As you'd expect, it was one of those. It was the scandal of the day, I guess. Um, and so, as, as I, I, I right here and in, in commenting on that, I said, furious, furious commentators demanded to know what would have happened if it were Barack Obama who had been the one assassinated on stage. The elites never would have allowed that. Well, in fact, they did. A production of Julius Caesar in Minneapolis five years earlier had a tall, charismatic, confident basketball-playing Obama Caesar who was stabbed by right-wing conspirators. And and that was not you know that was not such a big deal, but but with Trump it was. So it was just, a, it was just a, a, the, the book won me over, and, and I, I really hope that, you know, it finds readers beyond, you know, the, the students who will be assigned it to read, and, and I think the students who will be assigned it to read will get a lot out of it. And, and the title of it, again, is uh, Shakespeare and Trump? Uh, that's right, Shakespeare and Trump, and, you know, I don't remember which press published it. I can look it up here. But, uh, yeah, it's Temple University Press. Um, and the author again? So... I think you mentioned the well, author, a, but I didn't. I didn't catch it. Uh, do you have his name handy? What's that? The author. Uh, do you have his name the handy? Name is Jeffrey R. Wilson. Jeffrey O. Wilson. Thank you. You have to look. Yeah, that. it is. Um, I usually say where somebody teaches, but I don't have that right at hand. Well, so when you're when you're looking, this is all about, I guess. Uh, these efforts, uh, the the the, uh, the Chronicle and uh, the other periodicals that you write for, uh, the reason we put this out is so that uh, these thoughts, these ideas, uh, these reviews, is so that we're better informed and we're better thinkers. So we have a sense of history and we have some healthy discourse, debate, arguments about what you know, what what are good ideas and what are bad ideas to put it simply i mean is, is sure, absolutely, absolutely. It, that's basically what you're doing with your your skill set with your intelligence as what, a what, I, what, I, what, it's what i'm trying to do and and without being too pompous or pretentious about it it does sort of fall under the general heading of continuing education it's certainly continuing education for my part because i have basically a job in which i am a perpetual student right I mean, I'm 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 always you know reading books on subjects. That, some things I know a lot about, and some things I don't know anything about. So it's 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 um, you know a continuing education for me. But also to do my job at all well, I have to make it uh, the material available to people who you know, as a, as we've already said, had various levels of exposure to the subjects. Um, and so you know, I, I I hope it has to some degree that effect. It's you can you can't really quantify that sort of thing, but that's that's what I'm after. Now I I know you're not an expert in pedagogy, and you don't you don't claim to be. 
but given you know what we're all facing at this point in time uh, with regard to having have to having to do most of our educating or discussions uh, remotely, our connection remotely because of the pandemic. Does that bode well for the experience of of growing as a thinker, of learning, of connecting? Do you think? You know, I, I think about that all the time, and I just I don't I don't know. I mean, I I have to say that 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 you hope so, and and we better you know it it had better work that way because it really does seem like we're we're kind of going to be stuck in this mode for a while. Um, but there's also there's just a lot of stuff that goes on just in, in the you know the talking talking after class type of thing you know where uh, you know you stand around and if the professor is particularly a good lecturer you know you go up to him or her and ask questions that you were maybe too embarrassed to raise in class or, or whatever that sort of thing and and that I just don't know how much of that's going to be possible. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe it is. Maybe you know you send somebody an email and, and get the same sort of interaction. But um, but I'm just I'm maybe old school enough to think that the that the, the face to face is part of it. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm, uh, and it could just be because we're of a different generation and we're you know old and in the way. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm I, I was for I'm I'm an educator and I've been forced to go online because of the pandemic and you know you find ways you make adjustments uh, the connections aren't the same generally speaking you know not just with regard to education as the, you know they would be if you were able to be in physical contact with other humans uh, mm-hmm. but you still can have some sort of significant uh, connection mm-hmm. you know well I'm like uh, uh, I'm spend like a lot of people do now an awful lot of time on conference calls and things like that and and uh, uh, I saw somewhere the other day somebody said that a, a memoir of this period would be called uh, in the zoom where it happened um, <laughs> and and that's that's certainly it and you do sort of you know that that can be exhausting in its own way after a while um, but it's what we've got and uh, it is remarkable that we have it yeah otherwise I think our situation would be even more dire, right? I mean, we'd be just stuck with the people, not not to say it's a bad thing. I don't want to offend uh, anybody from my family who's listening, but we'd, or yours, we'd be just stuck with those people in the house that we're, we're quarantined with or sequestered with and no one else. Absolutely. My, my, my wife is a big uh, theater buff, um, which is, is partly why I'm as interested in Shakespeare as I've gotten, because I've seen a lot of Shakespeare now under her tutelage. And um, and uh, we, we, were, we were talking the other day, and I said, you know, I'm having uh, bookstore dreams. I, now, I don't need any more books. So I have, like, you know, walls of books here. But it's one of the pleasures of life for me to go into a new book, into a bookstore and see what's new. Yeah. You know? And, and she said, oh, I have theater dreams. And I thought, well, of course you do. You know, I never, it never occurred to me that she did, but of course she did. She's gone to theater every week for, you know, her entire adult life, and, and you can't do that now. Um, you can take classes on theater. You can watch theater performances, you know, that are, that are broadcast. But, um, but, you know, there's something about live theater which, which, at its very best, is absolutely transformative. Yes. Um, well, on, our, on our honeymoon, we saw a, a more astounding production of, uh, of um, uh, Medea, Euripides Medea in, in London, and it was, which was done as, almost as a ritual, almost as a kind of a, you know, a Greek mystery religion ritual. And it was, it was just easily one of the most astounding you know, experiences in, in, in ever going to theater. And it just would not be the same if it were done on a big screen. 
No, no, or a little screen, you know, on your on your laptop, which, uh, you know. But you know, I I wanted to broaden it this discussion uh, when outside of the the context of of the pandemic. When you look at how we in these United States, in particular, um, I guess connect with the human experience via history, via the arts. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, you know what is easily accessible uh, in our in our culture day to day. Do you think the experience is is one that uh, c- can cultivate a well rounded, thoughtful individual, or do you think it's it's not so accessible and somewhat limited to to be able to to develop as a, a person in, in that way? I I think it's. Um it would really be risky to try to, to, to answer that because you can't, um, or shouldn't anyway, under, uh, uh, underestimate people's capacity to do remarkable things with, with, the, with the hand they've been dealt. Um, and so with that in mind, you know, I, I think that the fact that we are so incredibly hooked up and connected and, you know, uh, able to communicate now, on the one hand, obviously it has some bad effects and, and I'll just, Say the word QAnon and leave it at that. Um, but but it also has the potential for, for positive things, and I just uh, you know I think we're going to see a mixture of both um, in the in the months ahead. Well, maybe I'm romanticizing, and I probably am. Uh, I'm going off a of mythology uh, in my in my head. But now being overwhelmed with so much, oftentimes you know I I, I see people uh, choosing. Things like TikTok, you know, over uh, <laughs> sitting on the back porch and just reading a book because you have no other alternative. Uh, right. You know, and, and I, I wonder if all the access to all of these these uh, these possible ways of, of stimulating your your mind uh, doesn't lead us to the right choices. Well, and and that uh, is is as some people have pointed out is is almost by design because the whole way that these these a lot of these things are set up on uh, social media platforms and whatnot are to give you that little that little uh, surge of dopamine when you have you know somebody who liked your comment or whatever and and that and that is in itself quite addictive you know uh, dopamine is what makes methamphetamine so apparently so very very enjoyable. Um, and so that that's just not that's just not good. And I think that uh, if if there's going to be any good that comes out of all this, it will be from people um, sort of reaching the point where they can use these capacities, these tools, and whatnot, uh, but also grasp the need to to limit their use of them. Um, that's maybe that's maybe a little too optimistic, but I, I do think that that I mean it's certainly what I'm struggling to try to do. Yeah, and I appreciate it. I appreciate appreciate your part in it. Scott McLemy, we're talking with today, and uh, he he um, spends a lot of time reviewing and writing about uh, education and uh, various aspects and pursuits in in that realm, uh, particularly through the uh, the Inside Higher Ed periodical, education, and um, we're. Uh, we're trying to understand basically where where we're going from from here as a, as a as a I guess a culture in the United States. I'm focusing on the United States only. That's enough to try mm-hmm. to figure out um, what are you what are you working on at present? Are you you have any upcoming 
projects that are of interest? Well, um, I'm, I am, uh, as I, I, I think I mentioned earlier, I uh, am a, something of a scholar of C.L.R. James, uh, who was uh, uh, lived between uh, 1901 and 1989. Uh, he was from Trinidad uh, and uh, lived in England for much of his life and also in the United States for a long period. Um, he was, uh, and he, 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 uh, he went to Mexico to talk to Trotsky. He, uh, any number of his students and admirers went on to, to run, you know, various countries in the, the, what was called the third world. Um, and he wrote uh, what is still, I think, pretty much the, considered the great work of uh, history and English language about the Haitian Revolution called The Black Jacobins. But he also wrote a book about Melville, and he just, uh, you know, he, his associates were the first to translate Karl Marx's 1844 uh, economic and philosophical manuscripts. Just a fascinating fellow uh, character and, and somebody who's, whose work I've been reading uh, and studying for a good 30-something years now. Um, I've edited two books of his writings and um, in quite some time ago, and I'm, I now have uh, two other volumes of his work that I'm working on. And I'm also supposed to be putting together a book of my own essays, but um, but I, I keep finding ways to put that off. So <laughs> I, I, I think that that's one of the things I want to try to get in here soon. And if people want to connect with uh, your work, how could they do that? Well, I think the the best um, place to... I, I have a web... I have my own site, uh, just my last name, maclamy.com, which I, I have not really done very much with. Um, you can find if you if just if you if you Google my name you'll you'll probably get the um, uh, the um, page at Inside Higher Ed that links all of my columns for there um, and there's also a service that that allows you to put up your clips or links to your clips I think the address there is uh, what is it clips dot m e slash m c l e m e e so, but but the best bet is just to, I, I guess to Google my name, and you'll you'll find you'll find the people who absolutely hate me, and you'll find you know my my list of, of stuff. Excellent, that'd be entertaining both ways, right? Um, yeah. Scott M C L E M E E. That's his that's name. Right. So I say there's no N in there; it's all M's. Yes, yes, and uh, it's a pleasure having you on Troubadours and Rock and Tours. If you ever get to that book of essays. And you're ready to talk about it. Love to to have you on again to talk about it. Uh, I will take. Yeah, that's a motivation. And um, if you have any closing thoughts uh, to share with the listeners regarding, you know, whatever, whatever's on your mind, please. Well, I'll tell you the one thing that's on my mind today is, and I sh- I, sh- I should have written something about this. Um, today uh, is August twenty first, twenty twenty. Today is the 80th anniversary of the assassination of Leon Trotsky, um, who was a, a very significant historical figure for my own reading and research. And actually, as somebody said, one of the, the handful of people to make political writing into an art form. Um, so, you know, I, I think that anybody who has not done so or is even maybe dubious about the idea that this is a, a, this is a figure you, should, you could find anything interesting about, um, I, I would strongly recommend Isaac Deutscher's uh, trilogy of biographies, which I think, by almost common consent, is, is one of the great biographies, of uh, political biographies in the English language. Um, it's uh, three volumes. It's um, The Prophet Armed, 
the prophet fallen and the prophet outcast, something like that. Um, and they're just a, it's a, a, just a, it, they're a good seventy years old, I guess, but they're just or, or sixty years old at least. But they're uh, just an amazingly good bi- uh, uh, three-part biography. Oh, excellent! Thank you for the su- suggestion. Uh, assassinated somewhere with it, Mexico, or that was that was Stalin. That was Stalin. And 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 uh, and actually, if you go back and you look at uh, at early stuff from nineteen up through the the rise of Stalin, up through Stalin assuming complete power, um, Lenin and, and Trotsky are names that are almost always paired, and that clearly, I mean, you don't want to reduce all of history to personal grievances and grudges, but that clearly was um, part of what Stalin was concerned to do, not just in assassinating him, but in doing everything possible to sort of obliterate his role in that history. Um, a very mixed role, very complex role, but, um, but Stalin just reduced it all to a demonology. Um, but, uh, but Deutscher, Isaac Deutscher, uh, just does an astounding job of, of covering all, all, as much of that uh, history as, as was available to him given the archives at the time. Excellent. It hasn't been passed in the meantime, anyway. I'm going to have to get my hands on it. I'm fascinated by Trotsky, too. And you can get it on Kindle. So Excellent. there's that. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us. And uh, I think it's apropos that uh, we, we ended on Trotsky and, and Stalin, given where we are in our own political uh, scene. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, enjoy the rest of your summer, and hopefully we cross paths again. Scott well, Michelin. thank you very much again for having me. This was a real pleasure. Same here. Take care. Bye-bye.
The Lonesome Cowboy, Episode 3. I am the Lonesome Cowboy. I ride the lonely trails and eat my lonely meals beside a lonely campfire with only my faithful and sensitive pooch Petey for company. I don't get much mail on the trail. I have postal addresses here and there, and I occasionally pick up old summonses from my hog rustling days or sad, misspelled notes from old pals falling on hard times, begging for a small loan. So when I was last in town for a shave and a bath, and was presented with a citrus-smelling envelope by a crabby fellow behind the counter, I was surprised and delighted. The letter was from none other than Beatrice Flambeau, the lovely schoolmarm who stole my heart. That night my campfire was a little less lonesome. I finished my beans and my bitter coffee, had a pull of whiskey for dessert, and settled back to read B's letter. Dearest lonesome cowboy, I hope this letter finds you well. I pray you are taking care of yourself on that lonesome trail, eating right, men do not live on jerky alone, and are not drinking too much cheap whiskey. I can see you smiling. And indeed I was smiling. You are not doing any of those things, are you? Oh, you are a rascal. And indeed, I am a rascal. Bee's rascal. But you are my rascal, and I don't think you'll ever change. Here I sense the wistfulness in the tone of her missive. Well, it's been a busy time at the schoolhouse, but oh, how invigorating. Nothing can compare to seeing young minds blossom, learning to read and write, to enjoy poetry, to understand history, to be perplexed and intrigued and enlightened by science. Every day is an adventure in a way, like your life on the trail. Of course, I don't have to worry about rattlesnakes, just sleepy or chatty, chatty school children. But all has not been well in our little town. There was a cave-in at the mine not far from here, and two of my students, bright, curly-haired children whose eyes sparkled in delight during our lessons, these poor children lost their father in the accident. The town has been so supportive, and I'm doing my best to comfort them, but I'm afraid for their future of the fatherless children and their poor widowed mother. Ah, tender-hearted bee. Oh, let's leave sadness behind in this letter. I've been reading so much poetry lately, and even tried my hand at writing some. No, I won't send you a sample just yet. I have to improve my verse first. Oh, I sound like such a schoolmarm, don't I? I looked over at Petey and grinned. He grinned back at me. There is another event I should tell you about. 
the old editor of the newspaper moved back east to retire with his family, and a new editor, fresh from Boston, took his place. He's a bright young man, and not to be vain, I believe he's taken an interest in your bee. We've talked over tea and we've discussed starting a literary society in our backwater. Imagine that. And he's asked me to submit, submit poems to the paper. I groaned. A poetry-loving editor. We recite Wordsworth and Shakespeare together and chat about all manner of subjects. He's such a well-informed young man and he's asked me to do To the Fall Dance. I tell you this, my dear lonesome cowboy, not to arouse your jealousy, but simply to give you a glance into my life without you as you ride the trails. Life must go on, and I must stop pining for you. You have your life, and I have mine. Perhaps some day they'll intertwine. Ah, a rhyme. Be well, dearest. Ever yours be. I heard Petey stifle a sob, and I did likewise. Oh, my bee, my dearest bee. I folded the letter carefully and stared into the campfire. I am a lonely cowboy. train a coming, it's rolling around the bend, and I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison, and time keeps dragging on. But that train keeps rolling on down to San Anton. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, Always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and cry But there's rich folks eating in a fancy dining car They're probably drinking coffee and smoking big cigars Well, I know I had it coming I know I can't be free But those people keep them moving And that's what tortures me If that railroad train was mine, 
Trusty Couch. I've got a busted finger, and my van is leaking antifreeze. This pandemic has me nervous about every cough and sneeze. School is set to start with empty classrooms. The openness of theaters and stadiums quietly looms. Presidential speeches and major league home runs happen with no one there. I watch and listen, sitting on this trusty old couch with a steady sort of despair. A girl went back to Napoli Because she missed the scenery The native dances and the charming songs But wait a minute Something's wrong. Hey, mambo, mambo italiano. Hey, mambo, mambo italiano. Go, go, go. You mixed up Sigiliano. All you Calabrese do the mambo like a crazy with a hey, mambo. Don't want a tarantella. Hey, mambo. No more mozzarella and hey, mambo, mambo italiano Try an enchilada with the fish bacala And then hey, I love how you dance a But take some other advice, paisano Learn how to mambo If you're gonna be a square, you ain't gonna go nowhere Hey, mambo, mambo italiano Hey, mambo, mambo italiano Go, go, Joe Shake it like a Giovanni. Hello, Casadich, you get a happy in the feet. So when you mumbo, it's Italiano. Shake a baby, shake it, cause I love her when you take me. Say you stop or I'm gonna tell a papa and I hate ya drool. You don't have to go to school. Just make a weed a beat of bambino. It's like a vino. Kid, you're gonna lookin', but you don't know it's cooking till you hey mambo, mambo italiano. Hey mambo, mambo italiano. Oh, oh, oh. You mixed up Sigiliana, it's so delicious. Everybody come capisce how to mambo. Italiano! That's nice. And there you have it. Episode 384 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly. E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, 
Scott McLemy. Our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis. Actor, Dominic Azzarelli. And these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Spoon, Willie Nelson, Morris Goldstein, Johnny Cash, Rosemary Clooney, and of course, Branford Marsalis and Terrence Blanchard, too. And I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care.